0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Uh I'm okay. Yeah, you're surviving the polar vortex?
1: Yeah, I I need it to end. Yeah. I need I need it to stop being I don't mind it being like -10, even -15. Yeah. I didn't even mind really the temperatures we had today. It's it's honestly it's the wind chill that that gets me. Yeah. But like yeah, I need it to stop being this cold. Like it can be 10 degrees warmer Celsius. <laughs> <laughs> all these temperatures I'm saying are Celsius. I I don't understand Fahrenheit at all. Yeah, same. How are you doing?
0: Fine, yeah. Uh, still running high off Cat People.
1: Right. That
0: very good movie and that very good episode.
1: Yes, yes, that's very true. That is what we just did.
0: If I was a betting woman, which I'm not... No. Would you recommend I gamble on this week's movie being just as good.
1: No. (laughs) No the evidence is is not like in your favor. Okay. Like like, this is a PRC movie. Mm -hmm. This week's movie is Dead Men Walk. Okay. From 1943. It's our first film of
0: 1943. Happy New Year.
1: (laughs) Right. Okay yes. It's a PRC movie as I mentioned and I feel like there needs to be a special category for pure PRC movies when they are produced by Sigmund Newfeld and directed by his brother Sam Newfield. Mm -hmm. Like, because the whole studio was designed so that those two guys could make movies, it always feels like you're just getting like the purest uncut PRC product when it's a Newfield Brothers production as well. Sure. In past episodes we've talked about the Newfield Brothers and the founding of PRC. We've also talked about Sam Newfield being the most prolific american director of the sound era so i thought it would be interesting to note that this is his second film of 1943
0: what day is it
1: uh dead Men walk came out on february 10th
0: so he's made two movies in yes. a month right Wait, did he start production this
1: is his second movie to re- come out in 1943 okay uh it was shot in six days god And uh, he would make 16 films in 1943 in total. Okay. So this is two out of 16.
0: One every month and a bit?
1: Yeah, like one and a half every month. The script is by Fred Maiten, who wrote PRC's initial film, Hitler, Beast of Berlin, and who also wrote uh, The Mad Monster.
0: I'm sure I've made this joke before, but is he a Mighton good writer?
1: Yeah, I feel like you said something similar <laughs> in our Mad Monster episode. And uh, listen, if you want those jokes on on the record, it, that's you putting yourself out there. In the starring role, we have our boy George Zuko, uh, who we last saw briefly in The Mummy's Tomb.
0: Mm-hmm, before his character died of old age.
1: Right. Uh, since then, he's appeared in a like Tyrone Power swashbuckler movie that was in Technicolor, uh, and then back down to the Poverty Row Studios for this movie.
0: Well, good for him for uh, getting in that swashbuckler trend.
1: Right. The lead female role here is played by one-time ingenue Mary Carlyle, born Gwendolyn Witter in Boston in 1914. She and her mother moved to L.A. after the death of her father. Her uncle was a film editor, and got his niece auditions and small parts in some movies after they came to L.A. Carl Emley Jr. noticed her eating lunch at the Universal Studios commissary when she was 14, and offered her a screen test. She began appearing in Universal movies, but was stopped by child welfare officers who noticed she was underage and needed to finish school first. (laughs) So, when she was 16 and finished school, she headed to MGM. Uh, lying about her dancing ability in order to get signed to a one-year contract in 1930. (laughs) She gained some recognition uh, from her small parts, and by 1932 was considered to be on her way to becoming a star. Her big break was the 1933 musical comedy College Humor with Bing Crosby. Uh, After that, she was a, uh, like, not a major, major actress, but uh, a leading lady in B-movies. Like, she'd be supporting actress in A movies, lead actress in B movies. Uh, She did appear in two more Bing Crosby films, Double or Nothing in 1937, and Dr. Rhythm in 1938.
0: Dr. Rhythm sounds like a great title. (laughs) Especially if it happened to be, like, a horror movie musical. Yeah. That would be amazing.
1: I mean, it's not a horror movie, so...
0: Yeah, I can dream.
1: Sure. Like, the marketing tagline has to be something about, like, he's got a prescription for rhythm or something like that. In 1940, she appeared in Dance Girl Dance with Lucille Ball, and that was kind of her last major appearance. Mm -hmm. She married an executive producer at 20th Century Fox in 1942, and Dead Men Walk was her final film before retiring from acting. She passed away at the age of 104. Damn, girl! uh, Last August.
0: Whoa. At
1: the uh, Motion Picture and Television Retirement Community for Actors.
0: Oh, there's, like, a specific retiree? Yeah,
1: it's run by the Motion Picture and Television Fund, which is, like, a charity fund to support, like, the healthcare and other needs of, you know, actors who are...
0: Basically freelance. Basically
1: freelance, per Yeah. Our young romantic hero in this film is played by a 29-year-old actor named Nedrick Young. Uh, this is his second movie role ever of what would be an acting career of 28 credits. Uh, however, Young has some more significant contributions to the world of movies as a screenwriter. Oh. He wrote the 1957 Elvis Presley movie, Jailhouse Rock. He won an Academy Award for writing the 1958 crime film The Defiant Ones, which was a major breakout movie for Sidney Poitier, and he was nominated for another Oscar for writing Inherit the Wind in 1960, uh, starring former Jekyll Hyde's Frederick March and Spencer Tracy as dueling lawyers on the subject of teaching evolution in schools.
0: That's really awesome. Yeah. So he was an actor and then was like, cool, I'll, I'll be a screenwriter?
1: Yeah, it looks like none of his acting roles were in any movies that like were anything more than B movies. He was a minor actor in minor movies and then presumably at a certain point was just too old to do that from Hollywood's perspective uh, and moved on to writing. Good for him. Finally, in the cast, we have our boy Dwight Fry. Yay! Uh, we haven't really seen him in a legitimate role since 1935's *Crime of Dr. Crespi*.
0: Yeah, he did have a cameo in
1: *Ghost with, of Frankenstein*.
0: Okay, I was like, was it Bride? But yeah, it was *Ghost*. He was um one of the villagers who was like, burn the place down, blow it up, <laughs> blow the place up.
1: Yeah. Uh, He had found himself quite badly typecast as a maniac or monster in Hollywood and was unable to get roles that offered him the same kind of range that he got in theater. Uh, And what roles he did get uh, often ended up severely trimmed or even cut entirely due to the Hayes office. When your specialty is being a psychopath and, you know, the Hayes code says no to violence and psychopaths, that's kind of it for you. Um, examples of this, you know, we've already seen include uh, his subplot in Bride of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. which was severely cut down uh, from what it was originally. He also had an entire role in Son of Frankenstein that was completely cut out of the movie. Oh. Uh, he's not in it uh, because he was, he was totally cut out. And then, yes, as we mentioned, he was reduced to essentially a cameo in Ghost of Frankenstein. Uh, Dwight Frye was a Christian scientist which is a belief that illness is an illusion that can be healed by prayer uh, and that you shouldn't, like, go to doctors and things. You should just pray your physical uh, maladies away. Uh, And by 1943, he developed a severe heart condition that he had hid from friends and family um, because the belief generally is that, like, the efficacy of the prayers will decrease if you do see a doctor. Uh, so we didn't want friends and family to know
0: because they would pressure him to see a, a doctor.
1: Yeah, they might like bring him to a hospital, and then like and that save would, his life. That would be like a sin, and would mean that the prayers would his prayers would go unanswered. Uh, so he couldn't join the army because we are into you know a couple of years into World War II now. He couldn't join the army due to this heart condition. So instead, he worked nights as a draftsman at Lockheed Aircraft Company. Uh, and then worked during the day either in theater if he had a theater role or on set if he had a film role.
0: What does a draftsman do?
1: You're, like, drawing, uh, like, diagrams or plans or blueprints or things like that. Okay. Right? Like, it's... Drafting is, like, technical drawing, I guess you could say. Okay. So he's he's not designing aircraft, but he's basically drawing the plans for the people who would... Have designed it. Yeah, so someone's designing it, giving designs to him, and he's transferring those into, like, blueprints and plans and things that then can be used by the manufacturers. Okay. Right?
0: So basically the boat architects in Cat People. Right,
1: yes, exactly, but for planes. Yeah. Yeah, so he was doing that at nights and then acting during the day. That's
0: going to be great for his heart.
1: Yeah, so... This is the last major role that we're going to see from Dwight Frye. He does have another minor appearance as a villager in the next Frankenstein movie, uh, but then that's it. Things might have turned around for him uh, when he was cast as Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of War in the 1944 biopic Wilson, but Frye died of a heart attack on November 7th, 1943, while riding the bus home. Uh, before he could begin work on the movie. He was 44 years old.
0: Wow, that's...
1: It's a bummer. Yeah. So, uh, as I mentioned (laughs) earlier, uh, Dead Men Walk was released on February 10th, 1943, uh, and like all of PRC's good, good product, it is in the public domain.
0: You know, distribution's very important to them. (laughs) If it's public domain, then it gets shared far and wide. Right. (laughs) Okay, well, since it's public domain, that means it is on our YouTube playlist, which you can find at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Feel free to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical intermission, and when we come back, we will discuss Dead Men Walk from 1943, directed by Sam Newfield.
1: See you on the other side, everybody.
0: with everyone telling you all the best horror films are from the 80s but not sure what the new horrors are? Why not check out New Horror Express, a long-form interview podcast where host Scott Murphy talks to the best indie talent working in the horror genre today. These unscripted interviews usually include a chat about the guest's latest project but frequently go off in a myriad of unexpected directions. For those of a more literary bent, New Horror Express has got you covered, too, as they chat with the best new indie horror writers. With only a year into production, New Horror Express boasts previous guests like Pie Racket director Adam McDonald and The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot director Robert D. Kriskowski. So check out New Horror Express on iTunes or head over to their website newhorrorexpress.com to see what great guests they can bring you in the rest of 2019 and beyond.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Dead Men Walk from 1943, directed by Sam Newfield. Sarah, how'd you like the movie?
0: Haven't we seen this one before?
1: Yes, we've seen this one a few times. I guess you could call this Poverty Row Dracula. Yeah, or
0: Bland Dracula.
1: No, I would have to emphatically disagree with that. Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's fair. Maybe I just found it bland because I kind of saw everything coming because it just rips off Dracula.
1: Well, except that... It doesn't? <laughs> you're right. You, no, you're absolutely right. Like the, the The formula of the movie is Dracula. That's what they're working from. That's the blueprint. But I would still highly recommend this movie if you are a fan of Dracula because the way that it deviates from the formula is super interesting to me. Mm. And I really like some of the things it's doing with how it deviates from that formula, and the new twists that it brings to the Dracula story. Uh, Also, I would recommend this film if you are a fan of George Zuko, because you're getting two for the price of one. (laughs) Bogo deal. Right.
0: Well, tell us what it's about.
1: This movie, uh, to start with, is I think the first movie we've seen on the show with a pre-credits sequence.
0: Um, no, isn't there one in... Frankenstein with Van Helsing. Uh
1: I don't really know if I count that. That's like saying that like the viewer discretion advised content warnings that come up on TV shows are a pre-credit sequence. You know what I mean?
0: Um and isn't there one in like the Bat Whispers where the guys like don't tell anyone? That was at the oh, end. Oh, that was at the end, yeah.
1: And again, that's like not quite the same as this. In this film, we have The shot of a hand sort of grasping a book called The History of Vampires. We actually later find out that this sequence might have actually occurred in the story of the movie. But uh, it grabs this book, History of Vampires, and tosses it into the fire, which is a pretty bold opening. And then this spectral head of a narrator, essentially, because this is not a character in the story of the movie, basically admonishes us for not believing in the supernatural um, because, hey, like, you can't prove they don't exist. The speech, you get the sense of the meaning, but when you're listening to it, the, like, exact flow of the words is kind of a bit word salad It goes, you, creatures of the light, how can you say with absolute certainty what does or does not dwell within the limitless ocean of the night? <laughs> Are the dark and shrouded regions of evil not but figments of the imagination because you, in your puny conceit, say they cannot exist? I mean, that's some Chris Claremont purple prose right there. And I love it. I mean, what's great about it is that it's delivered well enough that you get it, but if you took that same speech and delivered it like completely monotone and deadpan, that's basically the opening to an Ed Wood movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. It was fun.
1: The uh, first movie I know of, like, in history to have a pre-title sequence, like, a, a proper pre sequence, is uh, 1934's Crime Without Passion. Oh. Um, but there might be earlier instances of it, um, because the history of film is Long. vast. The movie opens with the funeral of Elwyn Clayton. At the funeral is his brother... Lloyd Clayton, Dr. Lloyd Clayton, as well as Lloyd's niece, Gail Clayton, which to my understanding of family relations means that she's Elwin's daughter, but...
0: Unless they have na- another sibling. Yeah, it's
1: not actually directly said. And then Gail is there with her fiancé, Dr. David Bentley. We get the first little twist of the movie when Lloyd goes up to view his brother's corpse and they're both George Zuko. <laughs> And we sort of find out why this is, uh, like, why the movie would go to the effort of doing something so strange when we sort of learn a bit of the backstory. So this movie is kind of like a sequel to a movie that we haven't seen or was never made. Like, this movie has a backstory going in. It's like A New Hope. (laughs) <laughs> like coming in and people are just talking about events as if you should have seen the last part.
0: Yeah, um, but and it sounds wild.
1: Right. So Elwyn Clayton, the recently deceased, was a Satanist. He worshipped Satan and had forays into demonology and sorcery. He also had a hunchbacked servant uh, named Zolar, who's played by Dwight Fry in a part that's basically just Renfield and Fritz mushed together. Dr. Lloyd Clayton, Elwyn's twin brother, is not evil. He's the good twin. Uh, he's this, like, kindly, compassionate man. Uh, he was uh, so worried about, like, the blasphemy and evil that his brother would, like, wreak upon the world uh, that he killed him. He, <laughs> according to Zolar in expository dialogue, he pushed him off the cliff. At what I can only assume is the climax of the previous movie that doesn't exist.
0: Like I imagine, like l- a lightning storm going yeah, on behind it, them. Yeah, yeah, as for they're, sure. Like, dueling. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so um, he killed his own brother, but that's sort of hush hush. People don't generally know that because Elwyn was a Satanist. After he died, he made a deal with Satan, uh, which the movie like is straight up about uh, to come back as a vampire. So Zolar is going to assist him in being a vampire. Basically, this is a version of Dracula where George Zuko is both Van Helsing and Dracula because in this version, they're twin brothers. Yeah. I really did admire that, like, the movie is straight up just like, yeah, this is how you become a vampire. You make a deal with Satan. Uh, Because, (laughs) like, the actual movie Dracula is a little, like...
0: Vague about it? Vague about it, yeah. Uh, Also, seems like the only reason that... Owen has come back is because of revenge
1: right yes he he, he wants revenge on uh, Lloyd for stopping his evil plans that's like very specific he goes and sees Lloyd first thing and basically gives a Marvel Comics level villain monologue <laughs> about how he's going to kill his brother and then vanishes into the night so from this point on the movie is basically Dracula um, with the following character substitutions. So, Lloyd is Van Helsing, David Bentley is Jonathan Harker, uh, Gail Clayton is uh, Mina, and uh, Elwin Clayton is Dracula, and Zolar is Renfield. But basically, otherwise, it's the same thing. The interesting deviation from at least the Todd Browning version of Dracula is that no one believes that there's a vampire. Mm-hmm. Like, Lloyd sees Elwyn with his own two eyes show up and deliver a villain monologue and he's just like, I I must just be like under a lot of stress. I must have seen that. Like I must have just been seeing things. When Gail falls sick with the puncture wounds and the getting slowly, you know, weaker over time, like no one believes it's a vampire. Because why would they? Yeah. Right? They think L-
0: it's some rare form of anemia.
1: Yeah. In the movie Dracula. Uh, One of Van Helsing's lines is that a vampire's strength is that people won't believe in him. Mm -hmm. And in the movie Dracula, that's just sort of given as an excuse for why like Harker and Dr. Seward and Van Helsing have to deal with Dracula themselves. They can't appeal to like a, a greater authority like the police or anything because, oh, they won't believe us. But in this movie, we actually see a vampire taking advantage of the fact that people won't believe in him because Unlike in Dracula, there isn't a Van Helsing who already knows vampires are real to show up and explain it to us. Um, Lloyd Clayton is, you know, able to kind of put the pieces together. He keeps seeing his brother alive. You know, Zolar moved his uh, coffin out of the family, like, mausoleum to an unknown location. Doesn't
0: Elwyn also just straight up say, I'm a vampire? Pretty
1: much, yeah. Yeah. Um, So Lloyd has his suspicions that there's a vampire, but he... He's a man of science, he can't quite bring himself to believe it, and he certainly can't get David Bentley to believe it. And this is what leads into kind of the movie's biggest twist on the formula. David isn't going to believe that vampires are real. He sees that Gale is getting sicker all the time, he's a doctor as well, so he knows this isn't like a normal disease, and he actually figures that Lloyd Clayton is trying to kill his niece to inherit her money. Which, as the town sheriff points out, doesn't make any sense, but David's very upset. He goes to Lloyd's place uh, to basically accuse him of trying to murder Gail, and Lloyd pleads his innocence. And uh, what really is the turning point for David in terms of believing these things is when Elwin shows up for one of his, like, I'm going to taunt you with the fact that I'm an undead sorcerer (laughs) with superpowers and everything. So that gets him believing. Unfortunately, when David went to the town sheriff to be like, I think he's trying to murder his own niece. He was a little too loud about it in a little too public a place. He Um, was at church. Yes. (laughs) So the town is now ready to just straight up mob justice Lloyd Clayton. Um, Which the town sheriff is like, hey, don't. We don't have any evidence that's... Nonsense, like, I won't have any mob justice here. Now, Gail, her whole getting vampired predicament is solved because there is one person in this whole town who saw Dracula in theaters. Uh, (laughs) That's um, this woman named Kate, who everyone kind of brushes off as being crazy. And she shows up at the Clayton household and is like, hey, wear a cross, stupid. And so Gail puts it on, and that's basically the end of... Elwyn being able to do anything to her. But Elwyn now figures out a different way he can get revenge. Now that the town's kind of riled up, which is to basically go around killing people, vampire style, in like full broad view of the townsfolk, so that they'll be like, oh shit, that's Dr. Clayton, like murdering (laughs) people just as we thought. Because why would they think it's his brother come back as a vampire? They wouldn't. Mm -hmm. You know, no one in this movie leaps to vampire as their first assumption no one even thinks about it and when someone brings it up they're like that's crazy that's stupid yeah like a real person would in the (laughs) real world um so an angry mob gets riled up and goes off to the clayton household to well take care of things in their own way lloyd finally thinks to himself where could zolar have moved the body because i gotta you know destroy the vampire body to end the curse and whatnot and he thinks maybe he brought it to elwyn's house because that's just still around and I guess hasn't been sold or anything. So he goes over to Elwin's house and sure enough, that's where Zolar's uh, got the uh, coffin and Lloyd and Zolar engage in a fight. Meanwhile, <laughs> the mob arrives at the house and corners David, who's been watching after Gail. And David tries to tell them, like, Dr. Lloyd isn't here. He's not responsible for the murders. It's his brother Elwin. And they're like, you're just as crazy as he is. And basically decide that they're going to wait at the mansion for Lloyd to come back and just sort of keep David under observation because they don't trust him. This leads to what I... Uh, think was the movie attempting to do like a classic D.W. Griffith like cut back and forth raise the tension kind of thing but ends up actually being kind of unintentionally comical because the movie keeps cutting back from Lloyd and Zolar engaged in like a titanic struggle to David and the mob just sitting around the house waiting quietly yeah I don't think it would be as funny if it wasn't for the fact that the soundtrack like the score with the fight music cuts out When we cut to David, eventually in the course of the fight, uh, Zolar gets
0: pinned under like a statue.
1: Yeah, he gets like pushed into a statue and the statue falls on him and he's pinned and he's dying and he's calling out for his master's assistance. So Elwin pops out of his uh, coffin and then starts fighting Lloyd. So we actually get two George Zukos fighting with each other. And uh, during the course of their fight, you know, they knock over a candle, uh, yada yada, the house burns down. Meanwhile, back at the mansion, (laughs) David manages to get free by turning the light switch off and running out of the house. The mob runs after him, and they all arrive at Elwyn's house in time to see Elwyn and Lloyd inside through a window fighting with each other. Uh, So the mob now knows, hey, there's two of them. And And then Lloyd basically manages to fight Elwyn long enough for the sun to come up, and that kills Elwyn. The house... Basically collapses on top of Lloyd, and the movie ends with the funeral of Lloyd Clayton in a very intentional bookend to having opened with the funeral of Ellen Clayton. Yeah. And that's the movie.
0: Yeah, so I appreciated the points you made about where it delineates from Dracula. mm mm-hmm. um, The 31 Dracula. I think this movie is enjoyable.
1: Yes, I think it's fun.
0: Um, I think... George Zuko and Dwight Fry kind of carry the movie a bit. I mean, I think
1: all the performances are good. It's just that most of the characters aren't anything. Yeah, right. Like, fair. like I think, um, for example, um, Nedrick Young uh, does a really good job as playing David, and David at least is like, okay, I'll put it this way.
0: He's better than uh, Harker. Yes,
1: yeah, he's better than David Manners as Harker. He's a more interesting, like, character. Uh, at I, least
0: I also wonder if his character was named David to, like, kind of hark back to David Manners.
1: It probably was just a hero name pulled out of a hat. <laughs> I swear half these guys are, like, have names like that. Um, but yeah, he's, he's like, got an interesting performance. It's weird watching this movie because George Zuko looks like 1940s uh, Frank Langella, as we've pointed out before, And Nedrick Young looks like 1930s David Strathairn uh, from, like, (laughs) Good Night and Good Luck, but, like, way younger, you know? And
0: he has a really good voice. Mm -hmm. I think he would have done really well with voice acting.
1: Yeah, I I think Dwight Fry. unfortunately, I I know you said he kind of carries the movie for you, but, like, he's not doing anything here that he hasn't done before. Mm -hmm. And his character is actually the only one who's less interesting. Than the version from Dracula, like everyone here is kind of a twist on the character in Dracula, like Dracula, but what if, except for his character who has is basically Renfield with all the depth taken away.
0: Yeah, I guess what I mean to say is that um, this film has great one-liners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great yeah. quotes. Yeah. And um, part of that is the way that both Zuko and Fry deliver them. Oh, absolutely. Like whenever Fry opens his mouth, it's just. Amazing. Mm -hmm. And there is like this one shot when he is fighting with Zuko where it's like the camera's right in Fry's face. It's almost
1: Zuko's POV.
0: Yeah, and he's like slashing at him with a knife and it's terrifying. I I hate that he was typecast. He has a very sad story, but he does this
1: role well. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's great dialogue in this movie. Uh, You don't wait for death. You come to meet him. (laughs) Uh, That's what Elwyn tells Lloyd when Lloyd goes to kill Elwyn. Yeah, Elwyn has some like Doctor Doom or like Marvel Comics Dracula like level of dialogue in this movie. Like just the evil speeches he does. Honestly, like this movie for long stretches is basically just Dracula. Yeah. And it has the same problem that all the other basically just Dracula movies we've watched have had, which is not... Changing too much. I mean, to the point where when we were watching the movie, like I remarked that the timing of how Zuko, like, sucks blood from victims and the way those scenes are shot feels like they had a copy of Dracula, like, on set and, like, a stopwatch and were, like, copying it exactly. Mm-hmm. That being said, during the parts where it's copying Dracula, there are occasions where they do things that Dracula did and they do them better here. Like, I think that a lot of Elwyn's, um, scenes as a vampire are better than Legosi's in some ways um there's some surprisingly good maybe not good but effective use of like special effects here with letting elwyn do things like walk through walls and and things like that just kind
0: of disappear yeah in the shadows Um, the split
1: screen's actually pretty good
0: yeah for the shots
1: where it's the two of them
0: especially for a poverty row film
1: Mm -hmm. mm-hmm that was shot in six days six days yeah that's something you got to keep in mind when you look at, like, <laughs> the look of this movie. Because, like, I think this movie also has, like, a good amount of, like, shadowy horror movie feel.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe this is because it's a Poverty Row studio and PRC. But besides Zuko, Fry, Young, and Carlisle, sort like, our, our main four mm-hmm. people, um, you get the feeling that everyone else is just kind of on break. From westerns?
1: Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like... <laughs> from
0: the like, look, delivery, performance. Like, there's one guy who um, comments on, like, hey, I just... Uh, Kate, who is, like, the character Ben brought up um, as being, like, hey, we're cross-stupid. She gets murdered at some point in the film. And the guy who, like, finds the body and comes to tell the sheriff has the, like, no-teeth look yeah. that, like, an extra in a western has.
1: Yeah, but you're... I think you have to be right? Yeah. Like, because this movie's set in, like, modern-day America, presumably. Like, <laughs> honestly, the movie doesn't do the work to, like, tell you where it's set or really do anything like that. It's set in a town um, with a church, but it's certainly not set in the Old West. But, like, yeah, the guy playing the sheriff, the people in the mob, they are all a Western town, uh, you know, kind of background actors. I think I think you have to be right. yeah. And it just had to Gosh like, darn it, Sheriff, you're just not doing enough about these vampire <laughs> murders!
0: Um, by the way, that mob wasn't, like... I've seen more rowdy mobs, yeah, let the, me tell you, Yeah,
1: they're the quietest, like, most polite mob ever. It's like they, the only direction they got was, like, okay, you're gonna enter the scene from here and walk over to here, and they weren't specifically told, like, hey, remember to be rowdy, so they're just calmly walking from place to <laughs> yeah. place.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a little funny, especially because, yeah. like, seeing all these horror movies and seeing, like, the mobs in Frankenstein, mm-hmm. like, it's just, it's a little funny, but whatever.
1: Like, honestly, I was kind of impressed with what this movie managed to do, mm-hmm. um, especially knowing it's PRC, especially knowing it was shot in six days. Sometimes those lowered expectations, you know, really help with appreciating a movie like this. Um, it does
0: have some of the pitfalls of a Poverty Row film. Yes. So of filling time, like the only reason Kate is around and the only reason she gets murdered is so we can kind of drag things out. We get to see almost in real time, people walking from location to location. Yeah. So like the common, like things that you know from Poverty Row films, that's in here.
1: Yeah. I feel like the walking from place to place in real time is like a PRC signature.
0: And, like, I think this is, like, a neat example of why the Newfield brothers felt like, yeah, we can we can build a studio just to produce Sam's films. Right. Because, like, Sam is clearly, like, into film, you know? Like, either in what he's trying to do on screen with shadows, uh, even the way that the story focuses on different aspects Mm -hmm. you know in a lot of poverty row films we get a lot of focus on like things that don't really matter right but this feels like its focus is pretty direct
1: yeah like you mentioned the time filling things that the movie does and it definitely does them but at least for me this movie never quite lost momentum yeah um and yeah it didn't start just talking about things that don't matter uh the time filling is still within the main narrative you know um yeah I think I get the impression watching this that Sam Newfield watches a lot of movies Mm -hmm. which I don't know when he had the time to do that given that he was cranking these out like (laughs) weekly but um you know because There are shots in this movie that tell me he's seen Dracula, for sure. I mean, that's just kind of obvious, but there are...
0: That was 31? Yeah, Yeah.
1: but we know it's been re-released recently, because that's why they made Son of Frankenstein. Yeah. But there are also shots in this movie that hint to me that he's seen Nosferatu.
0: Yeah, yeah, the use of shadow when Zuko, uh, when Elwyn first enters the room and Gale is in the (laughs) bed, um, and she, like, reacts to his shadow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or there's a shot where um, Gail's in bed and we kind of see the bed in profile and it's in the dark room with the light coming from the window. That kind of reminds me of um, a shot in Nosferatu. Yeah, I mean, Sam Newfield feels like he's a guy who wanted to make the best movies he could for less than $100,000 in a week and make as many of those as possible.
0: (laughs) What do you think differentiates Sam Newfield from Ed Wood?
1: You know, that's a really great question. And I think honestly the difference is Sigmund Neufeld. Yeah? Because Ed Wood, I think, never really had anyone who believed in him. Sam Newfield's movies are cheap, but they are better than Ed Wood's. And I think that comes down to the fact that because Sigmund Newfield basically made a movie studio for his brother to make movies for. And, you know, they had other directors. We've seen PRC movies from other stuff, but like those other movies are being made so that Sam Newfield can make his movies. And so because there was a, they were a real studio that existed and had a kind of, you know, they were kind of an institution in Hollywood, even if they were the bottom rung, it meant that, you know, there's writers, right? Like, Uh, This movie's written by the same guy who wrote a bunch of other PRC movies, we know that, but he's a writer. Um, And it meant that because they had their own studio, there's some continuity of we have the crew and we have the resources and we have the sets and we have the costumes or whatever from the last few movies, we can figure out how to reuse them in other movies to save money. Um, You You have
0: the assets.
1: What you aren't doing is what Ed Wood often had to do, and what a lot of independent filmmakers have to do now, which is start from scratch every time. Mm -hmm. Where you know, every time you make a movie, you're looking for investors, and you're trying to drum up the money, and you're trying to find the crew, and you're trying to find the actors, and you're trying to find the studio space, and, you know, what sets can I rent, and what costumes can I rent, Uh, you know, and you're basically starting from scratch every time. You don't benefit from making the previous movie other than it might now be easier to find funding if that movie was successful, right? So every time Ed Wood made a movie, he was starting from scratch, and it was, you know, different investors every time and it was people who didn't care about him or whether the movie was good or whether the movie succeeded uh I mean I guess they wanted you know their money back but a lot of them I'm sure there was some financial scams going on with the funding of those kind of movies people washing their money by funding b-movies or something but like Sigmund Neufeld wasn't just the head of the studio he was also Sam's brother so he's not only invested in making sure the movie's do well but he's invested in making sure that like they're at least kind of good and they have some support behind them
0: yeah and keeping that momentum going
1: yeah it's it's having a money man you know who believes in you is the difference between the two of them Mm -hmm. for sure interesting it's kind of funny the way that like this movie is the dracula ripoff until they put the cross on gale and elwin realizes he has to change strategy And then it becomes, you know, about framing Lloyd and stuff. And that's, you know, also the movie where I turned to you and I was like, oh, this is why they're twin brothers, right? Why they're not just brothers, why they're specifically twin brothers. It's not just so that they can use George Zuko for both roles. (laughs) Um,
0: Do you think he got paid double?
1: He probably got paid more than usual because he was probably on set more days than usual. But that's probably about it. Okay. I did notice, however, that David gets to keep being part of the story because he's the one trying to keep the mob away from Lloyd. But once she's not being threatened anymore, Gale basically just disappears for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Like, a lot of the characters are more interesting than their Dracula counterparts just because of the little twists being put on them. But Gale certainly isn't. She is less of a character than Mina was in Dracula.
0: Yeah, she doesn't even get to be a bit of a predator. No. You know?
1: No, she doesn't get that far. Yeah. They, they um, fix the problem before it gets there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's just the story for Gail.
1: Yeah. So I just wanted to kind of point that out, that uh, it, it, if it succeeds in sort of improving on Todd Browning's Dracula in a few places, like, I would certainly recommend this movie to people who think that Todd Browning's Dracula is boring. I don't agree with that assessment, but I know it's a common one. And if that's something you think, I think this is the movie for you, honestly. But yeah, I think it doesn't improve when it comes to the female characters. Yeah. Okay, yeah, let's, let's talk about ranking. So Sarah, I have a sneaking suspicion that you and I might have a lot of difference in our ranges this week. Okay. Um, just because I feel like I had like more of a reaction to this movie than you did. It doesn't feel like one of those weeks where I liked the movie and you didn't, or vice versa. You were pretty baseline about this one.
0: Yeah, um, I appreciated what you had to say about its differences from Dracula, but, you know, this movie didn't wow me in any way.
1: It did wow me, um, but I think that's specifically because of how low my expectations were <laughs> for it. Sure. Um, so where were you looking?
0: I was looking... Pretty low on the list, to mm. be completely frank. Um, just kidding, my name's Sarah. Oh
1: boy. <laughs> oh boy.
0: So I thought, you know, this movie is basically Dracula. Right. So what about Spanish Dracula?
1: Right, yeah.
0: That's at number 64. And I don't know, I think personally I would rank this above Spanish Dracula, but right below Spanish Dracula is The Sealed Room, and that movie is like what, like ten minutes long, but yeah. it's pretty woof just seeing people suffocate. So I, I wasn't sure about putting this above the sealed room. So it kinda of like wandered down and I felt that like I fucking love the Devil Bat and The Unknown. Uh another Browning film. Mm-hmm. Um that was really good. Like it it was a rom com horror. But it was still pretty good in its horror. So I was looking between number 70, The Invisible Ray, is either above or below that. And I went all the way down to number 74, The Avenging
1: Conscience. Yikes. Alright, we're going to have some trouble ranking this week. Okay. So I am totally on the other side of the list from you. Oh. Like, you are looking like 20 spots from the bottom, and I'm looking like 20 spots from the top.
0: Interesting. Uh, Okay.
1: So my floor... Is number thirty eight, uh, which is currently the Man with Nine Lives, because I thought to myself that
0: what a wonderful world.
1: I had more fun watching this than Man with Nine Lives.
0: That's the freezer one. Yes. Right? Okay.
1: Um, Man with Nine Lives like has some effective like tension and like stuff in it, but honestly, I found it kind of a drag, and I didn't really enjoy watching it. And I enjoyed. I had a good time watching this movie. So that's my floor. My ceiling is number 22, uh, which is currently The Man Who Changed His Mind. Honestly, because I thought that, yeah, kind of the same reason. I enjoyed this movie more.
0: You realize that's, like, above things like Freaks. Yep. And The Black Room. Oh, yeah, for sure. And The Fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, man. And El Fantasma del Convento.
1: Yep. Yeah, I looked through all that. I was like, Uh, maybe, maybe. I mean, that's why my floor isn't above those movies. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, I thought the highest this could possibly go was 22. You know, that's what I mean. But yeah, we've we've clearly got a problem here. So if we look between your ceiling, which was number... 70. 70. And my floor, which was 38, maybe we can find a bit of a compromise here. Okay. The exact middle would be number fifty four, the Devil Doll. Mm. Honestly, this is better than the Devil Doll, Sarah. Yeah, um, this
0: is fully holy horror.
1: Yeah, and also I feel like this movie knows what it's doing. The things that it's doing to change from Dracula are interesting twists as opposed to like, I don't know, random pilings on of nonsense to try and make mm-hmm. it different, right?
0: It knows how it's manipulating the story.
1: Exactly. And it's telling one story. Um, The Devil Doll feels like a movie that might have started as something and then got like studio notes into being something else.
0: All right. Well, if we look further above, the next movie that kind of stands out to me as honestly not being as good as Dead Men Walk is The Ghost of Frankenstein.
1: At yeah. 44. Like, you can kind of see how I ended up with my range, right?
0: Yeah. Um, can you kind of see how I ended up with mine, though, Yes. Too? Oh, yeah? totally. Okay. It just happens
1: to be that we, like, started in different places, right? Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we've even got The Mad Monster, which was the last Sam Newfield movie we watched here at 51, and I think this was better than that. Because that, that was sort uh, of their... was
0: the werewolf?
1: Yeah, that was their off. attempt at doing Frankenstein and the wolfman at the same time, mm. where he gave the guy the serum that turned him into oh, the the. Yeah. and it was the wolf. banned
0: in Britain because of the Legends version. Yeah, yeah, of- and
1: I think this is better than that. I think this, like, feels, again, more focused. Okay. So I, I totally also agree with you that this is better than uh, Ghost of Frankenstein, because they're both copying a formula. Like, Ghost of Frankenstein is literally just what can we do from the first couple of movies over again? But this is doing something interesting with copying the formula.
0: What about Dracula's Daughter?
1: I thought about this. I thought yeah. about this. Because
0: that one is redoing the formula, but it's um, the last horror dies for a few years after this movie because of the code and people struggling to work around it. Um, and Dracula's Daughter is trying to do things, but its, its hands are cuffed. Basically, yeah. it it can't do what it wants to do.
1: Yeah, I think in a case like looking at these two movies, we have to consider the movie we ended up with instead of the...
0: Movie uh, they wanted it to be. Yeah,
1: the potential movie that we could have gotten. Like, Dracula's Daughter is doing some interesting things to change the vampire formula, but the execution and how it does those things isn't effective. Mm. You know, it's like... Let's say you have a recipe, like a cake recipe, and you're trying to experiment with it to make it your own, right? Because you got it off the box from the cake mix. <laughs> and so you want to make it like a little more unique. So Dracula's Daughter, you've got your cake mix, and you're kind of mixing it up, and you're, you're stirring the ingredients, and you decide, I'm going to throw in some vinegar and some mustard and some sriracha, and just stir that in there. And that's interesting... An interesting, (laughs) bold choice, but it's not good. And it's not going to turn out good. Especially because you didn't watch the oven, and it burnt, and also it never rose. So your cake is just bad. (laughs) Okay. Meanwhile, I feel like Dead Men Walk is you had your cake mix, and you wanted to make it unique. You make it your own, so you're mixing up the ingredients, and you're like, what if I put in Walnuts. And some chocolate chips. Yeah. And you did that, and it was fine. You know what and I mean? Maybe
0: maybe you substituted mashed bananas for eggs because someone's vegan.
1: Right. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a very simple substitution. Like, like the, what this movie's doing is very simple. It's not as ambitious as what Dracula's Daughter's doing. But the end product is way more cohesive. This is Dracula, but what if Dracula and Van Helsing were twin brothers? Whereas Dracula's Daughter is, what if, fuck, man, I don't know. You know what I mean?
0: Like, (laughs) Sure. Okay. Okay, so your floor was the man with nine lives. Right. I will concede that Dead Men Walk is far more of a horror movie and engaging than Boris Karloff in a refrigerator. Yeah. The Raven, we've discussed in past episodes pretty recently, actually, it has too much comedy in it. Yes. I don't know about Invisible Ghost. Okay. Invisible Ghost was a surprise hit for me.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm willing to stop there. I think Invisible Ghost is like this movie, a B movie with ambition, but I think Invisible Ghost has a bit more going on, mm-hmm. right? It's it's more interesting and has some really like haunting elements to it. Literally? Um, right. Yeah. And I mean you know, Monogram happens to have just a smidge more money than PRC does, so that kind of <laughs> helps. But, yeah, I think, you know, what if... I mean, I don't know. I fucking love George Zuko, and he gives a hell of a performance in this movie, so I don't want to replace him, but what if it had been, like, Legosi in the dual role here?
0: That would have been really interesting.
1: Yeah. Because they got real Renfield to play fake Renfield, so, like... And Legosi comes cheap, But, uh, yeah, okay, I think that's the good spot. So, coming in at number 37 on the list, a surprisingly good showing for a Sam Newfield picture, Dead Men Walk, from 1943.
0: Now, I guess my only question is, men is plural. Right. So, who's the other dead man? Is it supposed to be the fact that they're twin brothers? Maybe. Maybe. Lloyd is doomed to die at the end? You know, like Dead Man Walking down in Green Mile?
1: Maybe Sigmund sold the movie based on the title to the theaters before it was made, and then Sam just had to make a movie based on that title?
0: I would not be surprised. Yeah. Alright. So, if you would like to check out this list, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, submit an appeal through our website. Tell us why you think that a movie should be reconsidered, either higher or lower. Or you can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore
1: Scream Scene. updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and wherever fine podcasts are found uh, through our RSS feed. We'd really appreciate it if you spread word of the show.
0: Spread the spooky word.
1: Right. Uh, Tell a friend about uh, the podcast if you think they'd like it. Uh, Share us on social media or in just the real world. Uh, Word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow their audience. Uh, another way that you can help out the show is by becoming a patron of the night at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. Uh, you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. We really value our patrons. Um, we are so, so grateful to all the contributions that we get that help us keep the show going, uh, keep the quality of the show as high as it is, We show that gratitude by the rewards we offer on Patreon. Uh, At the $5 level, you get access to weekly bonus audio uploads that consist of stuff that was cut out of past episodes uh, for whatever reason. At the $10 level, you get access to horror fiction that I write uh, that isn't available anywhere else. So it's sort of a, a pretty exclusive club to read those. And once we hit our Patreon goal... $150 a month we're going to start doing a fifth episode every month a special look at horror adjacent movies uh movies that wouldn't make the list if they were regular episodes uh but still have that horror flavor to them somehow stuff like uh rankin bass's mad monster party or uh the clue movie adaptation or uh the rocky horror picture show
0: so what are we watching next week ben
1: Next week, Sarah, we are back at a major studio. Ah. Uh, we're back at Warner Brothers, uh, who we haven't seen anything from in a little while. It's a movie I really don't know anything about, uh, so we'll have to sort of learn about it together next week. It's The Mysterious Doctor. So the movie itself is mysterious. Mm-hmm. Maybe the movie is the Doctor. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, well, we will see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.